Good afternoon. Welcome to Women's Focus. I'm Carol Boss, still talking to incredibly interesting women from my humble abode. Later in the program, I'll be speaking with journalist Elizabeth Shogren from the Center for Investigative Reporting. She'll be speaking about her recent report on why doesn't America have enough personal protective gear for health workers. That will be right at the one o'clock hour. I was offered a little while back a book uh, from a friend who thought I might be interested in interviewing the author, and I read some of the blurbs on the back cover, and they included the following. She writes the intricacies of the equine human relationship as well as I've ever seen it written. Also, it is about the astounding power of horses to heal broken human beings. It is a love song to the broken ones, be they human or beast, and a poignant, positive story of human and equine transformation. Now, I'm not a horsewoman. I haven't known much about horses, although I know of several children who have been greatly helped by equine therapy. It's the blurbs that drew me in. And don't ever say blurbs don't have an effect. And um, I was really happy to accept the book and dive into it. And I will say, I was drawn immediately and dived deeply, I did. Dive deeply, I did. I like saying that. And it's, it's really a beautiful, deeply moving book. Joining me today by phone is Ginger Gaffney. She wrote the book, the title of which is Half Broke, a Memoir, and it's published by W.W. W. Norton. Besides being an author, Ginger is a professional horse trainer. She's a teacher of riding and riding. Actually, that sounds like the same word I said. She's a teacher of riding, with a D, and writing. And she has an MFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and um, Ginger lives in New Mexico. So welcome, Ginger. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. I've been waiting for this day a long time, and many congratulations on your very first book. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I've been waiting for this day a long time, too. <laughs> There's a long story that we won't get into about how we had dates set, but various things came up and that couldn't happen. But we're doing it today. So, Ginger, I know horses didn't come into your life early. I know that because I read your book. Uh, so I'm wondering, when did they become of interest to you? Like lots of young girls, young yeah. boys, young girls really are into horses. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was a young girl, very interested in horses, too. Um, but it it didn't materialize in my family. No one in my immediate family that was alive really had any interest in horses and I would ask for riding lessons I would ask for a horse for my birthday and for Christmas you know and I was a pretty horse crazed girl but I didn't have a lot of access to horses I would get gifts like uh, stuffed animals and you know plastic horses on the top of my Christmas that's how I knew which uh, Christmas pile (laughs) package was mine there was always a horse on top of it um and I did ride some when I was young, but not in any regular way because I lived on the coast of New Jersey and there wasn't a real place to ride. Um, but I did find ways to ride 
and then when I went off to college, I found uh, I was able to sneak in some rides in college because I was actually on a basketball scholarship. And my sophomore year, I moved off campus, and where I was living, they had they had horses, and that was the first time I was able to ride regularly. You know, they weren't my horses, but the, the owners didn't care if I rode them, and I would take off into the woods and ride them. Right. Mm-hmm. So you you write in your book that um, you didn't speak until you were six years old. You were essentially m- mute, and you were mm-hmm. introverted. And um, sounds like it was a solitary childhood. Did you have animals in your? Well, how did how? What was the basis of how you moved around in the world? How you navigated when, the world when I was young? Um, yes, I have three sisters, and they are very talkative, <laughs> and they pretty much uh, took took care of all the answering of everything that needed to be answered. Uh, I didn't have to do it. And we, we had to go to the doctors. Uh, the doctor would ask me questions and they'd be in the room and they'd answer for me. Um, and, you know, I, I don't remember a lot of it. I don't have a lot of memory of it. I, maybe, maybe because I didn't have language, I don't have much memory of early childhood. Um, but I do, I do remember being absolutely silent most of the time. And so, so does my family. And my mom was, so worried about it that she would take me off for tests and I uh, just really thought that I had like a disability. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just, I just navigated it through my family dynamic. And it was when I finally went to kindergarten, I went a year late cause my mom really thought I had disabilities, learning disabilities. So I was about six when I went to kindergarten and those were the first times I spoke in, in class when I had to, but it was very little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know from, of course, in your book, you write about Belle. Belle was the the time in your life, I think, when you decided you needed to have your own horse, to own your own horse. Yeah. And you wrote in your book, I'm going to quote you from your book, when I get in a tangle, when I can't think th- through things straight, I almost get on a horse. I almost always get on a horse. Bell taught me long ago that riding horses creates order in my body. Every molecule falls back into its rightful place, even as the world seems to break apart around me. I want to ask you about that, but before I do, is there one section in your book, and I don't have a page to request. Now you're going to hear turning pages, folks, because we each got to have a book, and you're going to hear the sound of a book, a beautiful sound of turning pages in a book. Yeah, is there any particular page or so that talks about the first time that you ever rode bell and i think you were you were in your early 30s i think yeah um yeah i i i I went to see bell at a very fancy barn in charlotte north carolina um my neighbor bob his nephew jerry um told us about this mare that the owners really wanted to get rid of her the price was right um she had a lot of trouble but uh, Bob took a look at her in one of the pictures and said, well, we got to go look at this mare. And because uh, she was a big, beautiful, um, shimmering chestnut, like almost metallic shimmering color and pretty tall and young, uh, two and a half uh, years old. So this is a this is a short uh, paragraph 
I, I started riding her in this outdoor, indoor, outdoor. It was half indoor, half outdoor arena. And here's a little bit. Riding on young, troubled flesh, the curl of her stride coming up underneath me, pushing upward, then falling back. Every 10 feet, the rise of her beneath me returning. Lap after lap, my body fell into her rhythm. Back into the light, I saw Bob. His mouth was moving, but it was many moments later when I heard him say, let her do the work. I leaned forward, let go of the saddle with my left hand, and lifted over her neck, ready for more speed. Mm. So was that essentially a transformative experience for you? Yes, it was. Um, I mean, having Bob believe in the horse and having Bob believe in me, I, I, he had no reason to. I mean, we were neighbors, but only maybe for about a year when we got into this relationship with horses. Um, it, 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 yeah, it changed me because I had somebody there for me. It wasn't just I was going to get my new horse and I, and I had somebody there every day uh, really rooting me on. Um, so I needed it because I there was not a lot of support for it. Glenn, Glenn and my partner didn't really want me to have a horse. Nobody in my family understood what I was doing. Um, and so this was something I had to do on my own to save myself. I wouldn't have known those words back then, but basically I know that's true now that I had to do this and it did save me. You know, it still saves me every day when I get to ride horses, especially during this time. So you had to um, transport Belle back to New Mexico. Yeah, she came with us and uh, she and uh, another horse we brought from uh, North Carolina came with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of things did she teach you? Um, so Belle, I always say this to some people, but Belle was a lot like my mother and I love my mother, but my mother is pretty scattered and, um, she, my whole family talks a lot. Um, we're, we're from the Northeast. So we talk a lot and we talk fast and we talk over each other and, uh, or at least I don't tend to do that, but it happens a lot in my family. And Belle was like an accumulation of all that noise. Um, she was super sensitive, very distracted, very um, aware of everything going on around her, all the little birds sitting on the wires. I mean, you, you could hardly hold her attention. So it was like she was uh, like my family. It was just so much language coming out of her all the time. And I had to find a place for me inside it. I had to stay centered. I had to stay listening to myself, you know, so inside of Belle. And I always say that, you know, if I, I said it for years, if I can get this relationship with Belle right, I know I can get my relationship with my mother right. Mm -hmm. Most of the book takes place on this ranch. In, it's in northern New Mexico. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's an alternative prison ranch. We're actually yeah, I'm, resident... I'm I'm happy to say that it is Delancey Street Foundation. I did not put that in the book, but it is the Delancey Street Foundation that is here in New Mexico. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, it's a place where residents who have been in prison, they actually apply to come to the ranch. And um, some of them, when you got there, I think were long-term long residents, and there was always new ones coming in as well. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell the story about 
how you got that call one day and the reason you wound up going to that ranch, but having no idea you're going to spend as much time, like almost every day of your life for a couple of years at least. Yeah, I I was just going about my business, training horses, you know, get calls regularly, um, emails and calls telling me about some problem somebody's having with their horse or some injury that somebody's had, you know. <clears throat> And so this call came in um, in in the evening, and there was a young woman, and there was a lot of noise in the back, like she was at a big restaurant or something, and she was um, pretty much screaming so she could hear me and I could hear her, and she was telling me that um, we need your help, we need your help, you know, the horses are really troubled, they're they're chasing us, they're knocking us over, and it was really fast. All this information came really fast, and I was like, who is this? And you know, and, and then I found out it was the ranch right across the river from my house. The Delancey Street Foundation has a 17-acre ranch, and they have horses over there. And she was telling me that the horses were chasing them after when they would bring their trash out after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They would chase chase them down, knock the bags out of their hands, sometimes knock the people over, grab some of the trash, and then run off across the pasture. And that this was a pretty regular routine. <laughs> And I had never in all my years heard anything like that. And I, you know, right then and there, I knew I had to see it. Um, I needed, I didn't know that I could do anything about it. I didn't know if I was the right person. Um, I didn't know the situation or how many horses they had or even how many people were over there. I knew nothing really. And then I went over and, uh, and start, and I asked them to show me, you know, show me some of the ways they bring their horses in from the pastures. And it was just absolutely terrifying to see how dangerous those horses were um, acting in a pack like uh, like some wild dogs. Um, but horses are the opposite. They are, you know, they aren't prey animals. They're um, they are the pre- that, you know, they are preyed upon. And so to see them turn into like a way wolves sometimes act in groups, um, it was just it was remarkably terrifying. Um, so that's how it all started. I know that was my first experience with Delancey Street and their horses. And we might say that um, if, if people are wondering why were all those horses there, they have – remind me of the, the name for uh, those of the people that are residing there who are oh. – they um, who work with the horses. It's from the – Livestock crew? Yeah, the um, livestock crew. Yeah. The livestock yeah. crew. So it, they have so much organization over there. Everybody is assigned to uh, uh, lots of different jobs, to the kitchen or to the um, moving company, which most people in New Mexico know about Delancey Street through their moving company and their Christmas trees. Right. That they sell. Um, but they have a 17-acre ranch that's totally enclosed. It is the only, uh, so Delancey Street has lots of locations around the United States. The one here in New Mexico is their only rural property, and it's the only one that they have horses on. So, so many traditions get passed uh, passed down from resident to resident, the older resident teaching the younger residents all the all the new skills that they need to, to for different jobs. But in terms of the horses, they really didn't have, have, have never really had a real knowledgeable person, and they've had Every so often they have somebody come on the ranch who comes from prison who says, oh, I, I know horses. I was I did rodeo when I was 15. So 
nobody was ever a horse trainer and no, nobody knew how to really communicate with it, with the horses. And so the whole communication between human and horse had been reversed, meaning the horses were more in charge than the people. And um, so it was just, a, you know, people had been hurt. Um, horses had been hurt because there were occasionally somebody who said they knew what they were doing. And one of the guys tried to rope a horse. And that's what the other reason I got called. There was a, a really badly injured horse that nobody could catch. And she was at risk of losing her eye if, if somebody couldn't catch her soon. So a lot of things like that were happening only because they just didn't have um, somebody at the top, one of the elders, somebody who really knew how to help them with their horses. It sound it sounded to me as if, well, the, uh, uh, so many of the individuals that reside at the ranch are mm-hmm. very troubled people and and broken in many different mm-hmm. ways. Lots of problems coming with lots of problems. And did you write somewhere that the horses? Witnessing such troubled behavior, it actually, in a, in a sense, they were mirroring the individuals. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that horses do mirror us, whoever we are with horses, because <clears throat> they, they're trying to survive. They're trying to understand. And sometimes the only way to know us is to become us. Um, I would say that's true about all my horses. They're, there's a whole lot like me. Um, and so at the ranch, we, yeah, we have intergenerational trauma, um, poverty, um, multiple um, uh, prison terms uh, and violent behaviors, prostitution and, you know, sexual abuse, all kinds of things. People are at Delancey Street from prison. Um, so they, they walk around with these troubled stories uh, in their bodies. And you can see that when you're, when you're there. And we actually can see it on most of our street corners because a lot of those people live on the street before they go to prison. So just really downtrodden, beaten down people. Some, some people really loud and, and loudly gesturing with their bodies. And, and then some of them are just uh, totally gone and, and um, sullen in their bodies with no life really in their bodies. That's what's what makes up the population at Delancey street, at least when they first come. And, um, over time that completely changes. Delancey street does amazing work, um, building people's lives up. And so their whole posture and the, they, they really learn how to meet people in the eye and talk. So, so Delancey street is an incredible place to transform and they get to each bring each other up. And that's why it works so so well because they don't have, uh, you know, people like me. I'm I'm a rare person over there. Most people over there, ninety nine percent of the people over there are from have had similar lifestyles, and it's rare like somebody like me gets to go on the property, and teach them anything. So, but for me, it was so visible that the horses saw that that brokenness in their bodies that they. Um, and also there was there was some stuff going on with the horses that the horses lost their you know trust or respect for the residents there um so the whole the whole relationship was broken on both ends so so being a trainer you um wound up in a way in ways becoming a behaviorist yeah and i think maybe i am at all i think maybe and i don't title myself that way but i i, I am such a witnesser 
you know, that I witness so much in, in my everyday with horses and people. And I'm always trying to figure out, I hear all these stories, you know, riders, uh, horse people tell me, hey, my horse is this and I'm having this issue. And then I come and I meet the horse and the horse tells me a very different story. So I, you know, I did that at Delancey Street. I went and I listened, but I could see right away what was what really was going on was the horses had no, no respect for the people. And the people did not have the body language to gain it or the skills to gain that respect back. So it was me having to work with them and their bodies, not so much their voice and the way they talked to the horses, but how they moved around the horses. Um, That was the biggest change I had to make. Well, you wound up making a commitment to um, going there frequently. You weren't going to be paid. Not with mm-hmm. currency, you are, are mm-hmm. clear to say in your book, but as when one reads this book, and, and you'll hear probably us talking today, that you were paid in many, many ways, in yeah. many deep ways, as were the residents who lived there. Yes. And the horses as well. So you brought, you wound up, after a couple of visits there, you, you brought some of your horses that you had trained. And what was the reason for that, to mix them with the... Um, with the ones that were the quote-unquote problem makers? Well, I, I, I realized that the, the people, the residents on the livestock team that were, I was working with, with the horses, they, they thought their horses were normal. They thought that the way those horses were behaving was like how horses behave. They didn't realize that it d- didn't go that way. It doesn't have to go that way. And so I brought my horses and a, a couple of my horses in training, um, Regularly, two times a week, I'd bring them over for the first maybe month that I was there. And we would work all the all the groundwork with the horses. We would use my horses who were just really well-behaved and who love people, who have a lot of respect for people. And the residents at Delancey Street just couldn't believe that horses were like that. They thought they were... They were thought they were like the ones that were trampling them and kicking them and knocking them over and chasing down the garbage... And I'm like, no, this, this, this is what horses are like. You know, you can really enjoy horses. You don't have to be terrified of them all the time. So I think I had to show them that. I had to show them, hey, no, this is the direction we're going to head. We're going to head towards this kind of relationship with horses. And once they got that, they got pretty excited. You know, mm-hmm. they, were like, they were really ready to, to jump in and really try. One thing that you write in the book that you're – you were saying to um, some of the folks there, well, if you want these horses to respect you, you'll have to respect yourself. Yeah. How yeah. you walk, how you hold your posture, this will tell the horses whether to stomp you or follow you. It also tells them whether you are trustworthy or a fake. So you want to talk about that? I would think that a lot of people who have not had relationships with horses may never have thought of anything like this in terms, yes, trust when you're working with an animal, but the whole thing of, you know, distinguishing whether you're trustworthy or a fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just do, you know, bodies are, are honest things, you know. How we, how we walk around really tells more of the story of who we really are than what we could come up with words. Bodies just don't lie. Um, cause unless we're an actor and acting and actresses, you know, making up stories with bodies, but, uh, you know, all day long bodies are telling me stories, both horse and human stories. And that, 
And so, so the, you have to, for me, their bodies were still saying that they were mad, that they didn't, they didn't think the horses knew anything. Um, they still walked around with uh, either that or, or they had absolutely no life in their body. And they were looking at the ground and pulling out the hairs around their heads because some of them had some more like neurotic behaviors. And so I was constantly fixing their bodies. And so some of the men at first just didn't believe me. You know, they didn't believe me. If they acted a certain way, the horses would really respect them. I had to I had to show them how to, to walk. I had to show them how to gesture with their bodies so that the horse wouldn't be uh, terrified and have to feel like it had to retaliate. So so yeah, horses are are just reading our bodies because that's what they do with each other. And you can't fake it. You can't fake your body, you know. I mean, I had to I had to artificially show them how to walk differently and try to make it a new way of, the, of, for them to walk, you know, it's just like looking up, you know, opening your chest, you know, swinging your arms, not pumping your fist and, and jabbing your feet into the ground and marching like you're, you're really pissed off. I had to change so much of the way they moved. And then we could do a little more horsemanship. We could really work with the horses. The horses were starting to get a little interested. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I know it's hard for non-horse people, but it's really just the language of bodies. Yeah, you talk a whole lot about language of bodies. If you just joined us, this is Women's Focus. I'm Carol Boss, and joining me today is Ginger Gaffney, the author of um, Half Broke, a memoir, and we're talking uh, about that right now. So you also wrote that um, everyone likes to say we can't show our horses any fear, but but that you... Uh, really do disagree with that. And mm-hmm. what they most need, you you write and talk a lot about, is honesty. You, you yeah. do mention that a lot. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what that, what does that mean to a, a horse and how does it get manifested between horses and humans and then between horses and other horses? Well, yeah, but horse to horse is straight up truth. You know, there's, there's not the psyche... Um, that makes up um, stories and complicates things. And I'll, I'll often, for me, and like I said earlier, I'll hear I'll hear a person tell me what she or he thinks they're struggling with with the horse, and then I meet the horse and I watch the interaction, and I I can tell it's they're two 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 different stories. They're talking about two different books. You know, they're watching two different TV programs. They're human, and so so. Horses are really simple in that way. If we can, if we can not think of ourselves and the way we work things out, and learn how horses work things out, which are just simple body gestures, and they're they're constantly trying to figure out their place in the herd or their place with their human. And if we get into some places that's not clear for the horse, that yeah, they'll start making choices on their own to protect themselves. So. So honesty for humans is the human horse relationship. For me, the honesty part is us humans trying to be more accountable for. See, we tell ourselves these anthropomorphic stories, you know, around our animals and the horses don't understand those stories. That's not their story. That's not the truth, you know, and I find that a lot with people and animals is they're 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 making it um, a human story. It, their story about their horse is really a human story, and the horse doesn't understand that story. 
they need for you for us to be as honest and clean and simple and try to talk their language because it's we are the ones who are choosing to be with them so and we need to learn their language instead of just telling the same human stories over and over again to our horses and our dogs too yeah space is so important in all of this the movement and the space and and you you wrote too about um how important the clarity and accountability is right yeah it's really important for for the horse human relationship mm-hmm. And it's really, really important in recovery from addiction. So that that's what makes the the residents um, be so good at learning from the horses because they were so quick to when they would when they would do something from their old habits, they'd be so quick to catch themselves and say, "Oh, yeah, oh no, that that was the way I, I've always dealt with people who ignored me," or you know, and then they would they would own up to their their own you know behaviors and that's what we need we need to own up to our behaviors around our our animals because like i said we're we're the ones trying to get close to them so we need to learn their language there's quite a cast of characters in in your book both the the humans and I love re- oh, I loved all of it. I love to see the relationships between the humans and the horses. There was Luna and Estrella and Willie and Scout and others, and there uh, there's so many great stories of the relationships and and the behaviors. Let's talk about some of those residents. Um, one of them is Eliza. Yeah. Talk about what she was like when she arrived at the ranch. Well, Eliza. Um was sitting on what they call the bench um, when I first met her. And that bench is a, where you go when you're at Delancey Street, when you've, you've broken a rule um, or they don't know quite what to do with you, whether um, you should have um, what they call a contract, uh, which would be like a way of working out some of the stuff that you broke the rules about. Or you might be close to leaving the ranch because they might be kicking you off. Um, back to prison. So I met her when she was first on the bench and they were two other women were asking me if I thought she could join the horse program. And she was not somebody that could even look up uh, from the ground. She couldn't meet my eye. She didn't have anything to say. Um, I don't even know if she said hello that first day. Um, So she's somebody who's been in and out of prison quite a bit, a lot of uh, in and out of recovery programs um, and has a a very um, difficult family history with addiction and and drugs. Let's just say uh, she's had a lot of trauma in her life, a lot of trauma from early childhood. So when I met her, she was um, she was the one that was pulling all the hairs out from around her head and her eyelashes and she couldn't meet me in the eye and she couldn't speak. And so I, I just found a way, we found a way to get her on the horse program and we were, we were hoping that would help, help her, you know, kind of wake up, um, and come back to life. And over, over a period of only maybe a few months, she made a huge transformation. You want to read, um, page, I just opened uh, my book to page 90, 90, okay. which talks about when she gets on Willie, Willie is one of the horses. Second, on the second or the mid-paragraph? Yeah, yeah, that second paragraph. Yeah, and continuing on top of 91. Okay. Eliza's eyes are open now, their whole circumference visible, no longer hiding behind her droopy lids. 
With most of the hairs pulled out from around her face, she looks lighter than her size. She doesn't wait for Omar to come with the ice. Back in position, she reaches down for Willie's leg and starts all over again. Willie pulls against Eliza's grip and raises both front legs into the air, performing a mini levade about two feet off the ground. Eliza tucks, squeezes, and performs it with him, moving in tandem off the ground and then back down. Willie bounces off the earth and pulls free of Randy's grasps on the lead line. He's lurching forward on only three legs, free now. Eliza's hair flies forward and covers her face. They circle the barn lot, Eliza leaping back and up like a kangaroo in reverse, holding tight to Willie's legs like her life depended on it. Willie comes to a stop right in front of the hay barn. Eliza loosens her grip and Willie's hoof falls to the ground. She unfolds her torso, stands up straight, and lays her left arm across Willie's back. Floor and I lock eyes. Well, the next part where Eliza says, you know, I can can tell he wants to be free, but he doesn't seem anxious or mad about this. And you said it's the first full sentence that you heard her speak since she arrived. Yeah. That's monumental. Yeah. It was was amazing to watch that. And and Eliza, to to this day, will say that the horses are her, they're, they're the biggest reason she's, She's out now, and she's uh, doing really well, and they, she'll say they saved her. So they woke her right up. And she started to care. She always says she started to care for something besides just herself right in that moment. I had many tears in reading that book because the stories are really moving. They're really powerful. And your language is really beautiful. You're such a great writer. Well, thank you. Thank you. You talk also about Moo, M-O-O, <laughs> Moo the horse. Mm-hmm. And I think you, yeah, I wrote a quote down that, that that's your quote. He's my anchor, my horse of choice for anyone who may be struggling. Moo's a solid equine citizen. I love that. <laughs> he will do no harm, and often he helps a resident build confidence. And there were two stories that I'm recalling about Moo and residents, and one is with Randy, and the other one is the beautiful story with Olivia. Randy yeah. was quite an interesting, he was <laughs> quite an interesting guy. <laughs> and you want to talk about um, him and Moo? Sure, yeah. Um, so we had the same people um for about 10 of 10 of us and Randy was with the program with everybody else, but he was very lagging behind because he is, must've had, I don't know, but like attention deficit disorder was one, probably one of his co-occurring conditions. He had plenty, he had a lot of anger. Um, he, you know, he, he was never really in school, so he couldn't read or write. So he's illiterate. And he was, I think in his mid thirties when I met him, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, big man, really, really overweight. So I was always, and he was a, a, a compulsive liar and had a lot of bravado and a lot of people on the program really just didn't want to be around him, but he was there and he loved the horses. And um, so we had to endure a lot of, you know, all his puffy bravado stuff that he would 
do every day, you know, tell me all these things that I know he couldn't do, or, you know, I know he was lying, but I would just have to listen to him. Like he'd say, Oh, I got all the horses up today, Ginger, all by myself. I've groomed them all. I sat on them all. It's like, it was an impossible. He couldn't have done it all. And he didn't have the skills to do it either. And so, so I was sort of put in a corner with him. Like, what am I going to do with him? And that's when I just decided I'd let, let him work with Moo, my, my gelding, my Morgan gelding, who was at the time about 17 years old. And he was a solid equine citizen. He is a solid equine citizen. And I knew he, I knew he wouldn't hurt Randy, like, cause all the other horses I knew would hurt Randy cause they wouldn't put up with his antics. So Moo kind of took on the role of having to take care of Randy. And it was a, a beautiful thing to witness um, for me um, to witness my horse take this really awkward character and he had such a strong body language randy did and i thought that would turn moo off but moo found him fascinating and so they became very good good partners over uh-huh. time i love what you wrote about um moo you said you call him you called him your dreamer and that he you wrote he likes being gone more than he likes being here he has a higher calling when coyotes and bobcats prowl his pasture, when 40-mile-an-hour winds blow his mane and tail sideways, when blizzards white out his entire vision, Moose stands stoic and peacefully still, peering into the portal of a different world. But then you said, but with Randy, Moose all ears, animated eyes, his hooves adjusting to keep up with Randy's constant jostling motion. Randy is a quirk of nature, and move finds him fascinating. <laughs> what a great relationship. Yeah. And now, I know I, if there's anybody listening from Delancey Street that was part of the program, they all would admit that uh, Moo was a superstar. Everybody loved Moo. And <laughs> he, he brought so many people along. Some people were having bad days. I'd just say, well, don't worry about riding Australia or that. Don't. That's too much for you today. Just go get Moo. And they, they would go off on a ride with Moo all by themselves and come back looking like all re- renewed, you know, and be- back to believing in life again. Because days over at Delancey Street are long and hard. And there's a lot of residents. At that time, there was about 100 to 110 residents on that 17 acres. So that's a lot of people in a small space. And um, so they, they have some pretty tough stuff that they go through. And I would see them, you know, they come to the horse program and you'd see them. They're just pretty uh, either stressed out or worn out, you know, and they're trying, trying their butts off to, to do the right thing, but they don't always make it, you know. So, so I want to just mention to listeners that you um, we're talking about not all the people that were um, taking part in the program at the ranch, but um, a number of them mentioning names, first names, but you did change their first names so that we're not revealing anything that anyone could figure out who that is if they didn't want that to happen. Yes, that's right. So what? let's talk about, uh, this is such a, ah, it's such a lovely story, Olivia, and I'm trying to see if I have the page written down. Oh, I think 180. What what Olivia was like when she arrived, and well, Olivia is actually, and I say this in the beginning of the book. Um, there's only a, a couple characters that are composites 
But Olivia is a composite, meaning she's actually two women that I got to work with mm-hmm. and, and um, that both had, um, you know, had their, their struggles. Um, they were pretty similar and, and um, they were actually both very involved with Moo, uh, you know, and so, so this is an actual event that happened, but I kind of made Olivia a composite of those two, two women. So the Olivia, um, she, she had, a, I don't know what her co-occurring condition was, but she had some mental health issues. And um, so she would, she was always saying to me that people were stealing things from her shower. They were touching her toothbrush. And like at dinner, she wouldn't be able, if her fork hit the plate, um, she could she could pick up the food and eat it. But if her fork hit the plate, she'd have to go get a new fork. So she had all these um, sort of budding neurotic problems or issues for herself. And um, one of them was touching people. She couldn't touch anybody. And when she did, she like had to go right to the bathroom and wash off real quick. And so... Um, she, she, you know, how was I going to get her to work with the horses if she wasn't willing to touch them? And so this, this whole story with Olivia is about how, um, I was asking her to try to pick up one of the horse's feet and she, she got triggered by it so much so that she ran off and, and ran into the greenhouse, which is one of the places she worked. And she went, ran right in there and started kneading into using her hands and kneading herself into the dirt like she was kneading bread or like a cat does on a pillow. And I ran after her and um, Eliza came in, too. And Eliza just started talking to her like, oh, Olivia, are you OK? What did what did you have for lunch today? And she just brought her brought her back um, real quickly just by asking her simple questions. And um, and so anyhow, I decided to try something different and Moo when he was younger was pretty spooky and uh, he was um, really spooky from behind if something came up from behind and it went on and on for a number of years until he was seven or eight and he was still spooky and I had you know in the horse world one of the things we can do for a horse is nervous system is you can lay them lay them down uh, teach them to lie down um, like it's kind of used as a trick these days in the horse world, but it's really a way of ch- changing their um, sy- sympathetic and automatic nervous system um, so that they can go. Horses uh, sleep standing up. They have the ability to st- sleep standing up because they because um, they're flight animals. So when you lay them down, you take away their flight uh, reflex, and then they can really. Um, get some like dopamine and and really calm down so that's why we lay them down and I had taught Moo to lay down years and years ago before this incident with Olivia <clears throat> and I thought to myself well m- maybe I can just lay him down and and then she would come down to the ground and then then they'd all be on the ground because like she seemed to need to be on the ground um Olivia so that's that's the that's part of that story with Olivia and Moo um it, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. Yeah, well, that she joins him on the on in the soil, right? Yeah, a, she can, Yeah, and she finally. I don't know if she touched him that day. She ended up. And so Moo became her horse. So here, here is another example of like she was the most in need, and he was the horse for her. So he was the first horse she would actually touch, and she learned to groom him and 
put her hands all over him and then she learned to saddle him and then he was her main horse for riding for really her whole time that I knew her. Um, she, he, he was the only horse she felt comfortable with. But at least there was somebody, something, some living being that she could touch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read something that you wrote about that. Um, mm-hmm. I sit on the ground behind Moo's back and start, and that's you, right? I st- sit on the ground mm-hmm. behind Moo's back and start scratching his withers with my fingernails. He rubs his neck back and forth against the sand in rhythm with my hand. Everyone is silent. Eliza and Olivia crawl through the sand on all fours and sit down behind my back. Moo's ribcage heaves and fills with air, then rests back down. A low rumbling groan of contentment leaves his mouth as I rub all over his body. Olivia sits so close to me that the side of her rump touches mine. I scooch over and she crawls right beside me, her knees touching Moo's back. My arms rise and fall with the rhythm of Moo's breath. I look to my side and meet Olivia's amazement. She sits up on her knees with her arms out in front of her body, floating her hands just above Moo's ribcage. She rolls up the sleeves on her light blue hoodie, I look down at her right forearm where the scars tell stories of her battered childhood. Moo lets out another long groan. Touch him, Olivia, Randy whispers from the other side of the rail. Olivia tips her head in Randy's direction. One thin tear drips down her cheek. And that's... And I had... I read that one one tear dripped down my cheek. No, it's just um, really marvelous and beautiful, the relationship between all of them and the relationship between the horses and and the humans at the uh, Delancey Ranch. And you still are going there. I haven't gone to see, uh, usually, Chris, at Thanksgiving, um, they 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 kind of cut off the horse program because they get real busy with their Christmas tree lots getting ready. Um, and so usually I don't see them until sometime after the first of the year. Well, this year, you know, everything's closed down. So this is the longest I've been in, out of touch with them uh, uh, since I started there. So I, I don't know how things are going. I know they had to cut everybody off. Like they're not going out at all. They're, they're staying in like they didn't have their trucking business or anything going on right now. So, but I imagine the horses are doing fine. Cause when they're not doing fine, I usually get a call. Um, ginger to the rescue. Yeah. Ginger to the rescue. <laughs> and uh, it's been, uh, you know, six or seven years of, of all kinds, uh, all new people. Every time I go, I meet new people, new stories, um, just beautiful, beautiful people over at Delancey street. I'm so grateful have met them. So in ways, when you first started there, did you consider yourself one of, um, you know, not in the same way, but from your, your, your past, uh, being much younger, like a broken person who in a sense was rescued by meeting up with all of them and working with them with the horses? You know, I, I, I mean, I didn't know how much, they would affect my life. I, I, mm. I, I, I was, I'll be honest, and I, I'm honest with a lot of people. I had a lot of prejudice around uh, drug addicts. You know, I've been broken into my house, you know, four or five times. 
and always by drug addicts. And even when we were in North Carolina, we were broken into by the drug, somebody who's a drug addict. And so I, I was not, you know, somebody who thought great things about drug addiction or recovery. So I didn't go in like a, like that, you know, I, I went in as a horse trainer. Um, and then, and then, you know, day by day, week by week, month by month, I watched, you know, how, how amazing the people are over there and how hard they're trying. And I started to see, you know, I, I got um, hooked by it in such a way that I was doing less of my own horse training and spending more and more time over there. And, um, and I had to, writing this book, I had to figure out what it was, you know, what had happened to me. So it really was in the process of writing the book that I really honored how much um, I had to change and how much I had to become accountable to my own self and some of my own past and how much being over at Delancey Street has really helped heal heal me in some way. Mm -hmm. One thing that I saw that you wrote uh, since the book was is called postcard from the pandemic space as a blanket for well-being you want to talk about that a little bit yeah well for me i've never been comfortable in crowded spaces just like from my childhood you know um i'll go into a room and i'll figure out where's the farthest corner and where is it from the door uh, and I'll figure out where I can go inside that space to keep my space from everybody and I, I still really do that so so social distancing for me is a natural uh, a natural thing and it kept me feeling separate and it's always a place that I came to because I never felt like I really belonged anyhow so I was always kind of hiding away from everybody and then um, so now when I go out and I see us all, especially early on when we were social distancing early on, people were very uncomfortable with it um, and they couldn't meet, meet me in the eye. You know, they, they couldn't meet each other in the eye. They weren't, we weren't talking to each other. We were just isolating like I, like I did most of my life. Um, and now for me, you know, because I, I just wanted to talk uh, that whole, that little story is just about how, we don't have to be um, so separate, even if we are have some space. You know, even if we keep our space, we can still stay connected to one another. I mean, and also that's kind of what the animals do. You know, that's what horses do. They they respect each other's space or what I call their bubble. They have a big bubble around them, and if you walk into it, you know, they, they're you know you better be ready. You either have to. They have to respect you because that's the way they treat each other. And um, so I just was, the horses have really taught me that space is an intimate thing. To have space between us is a very, very intimate thing. And it's something that we could think a lot about that while we're, because while we're, we're going to be doing this for a long time, this social distancing. So getting comfortable with being apart and still being able to be uh, I call intimate, meaning that we can still see each other as humans, you know. One thing that you wrote, actually at the end of this piece, 
you wrote, can I do better? Can I go into the world and trust the space between us? Can I meet people in the eye, open my chest, drop my shoulders, tilt my head to the side and smile? Can I help make someone feel more cared for in this very difficult time just by letting my body have a kinder language? For so many years, I hid myself in this space between us, but now I want to reach out. I want to try. It's so perfect for right now. And what a wonderful weaving, intertwining of of what you're writing with horses. This is also in the piece that you wrote. These days when I head out to the horses, I'm ever more aware of how our bodies reshape each other from a distance. I feel pressure on my chest as my horse gets too close. I hear the sound of each hoof landing in an even four-beat cadence just behind the soft padding of my own two feet in the sand. I feel the mist of my breath on my forearm as we walk to the arena, my horse right next to me, three feet away. I notice the soft wrinkles above my horse's eyes, the slow opening and closing of his nostrils, and I wonder, what does he see in me? That's really pretty lovely, too. And, you know, we didn't talk about this because this is something I never even heard of before, not knowing much about horses, that when a horse's hoof lands, there is this Four beat cadence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's their language. <laughs> they communicate with each other. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. The way, you know, every, every step inside a herd has, has, has something to say. Um, it's either t- away towards fast or louder, but the feet are the feet and some of their other gestures around their ears and their tails and, things like that, but the feet are the the biggest way they speak. And uh, I think that a lot of people don't uh, understand that, but for horses who, that is the main form of language for them. Can you talk about the other um, motions that they make, perhaps with the eye, and I'm trying to think what else. There was also something I wasn't aware of either. I don't know if the the ears are big, um, the way they can go straight forward, when they're very attentive to something that is maybe a little worrisome or they're curious about their ears or get very uh, straight up and down and face forward. And then uh, the left ear will go out um, to the side to hear like the neighbor's dog call, um, you know, or, or some sound off in the distance. If they're, if they um, walk into each other's space without really, um, being wanted, uh, the ears will go straight flat back. Or if us humans ask them for something that they are having some trouble performing, they can get their ears will go straight back. And that when they're flat against the head, it means they're very upset about it. When they're just back, but listening means they're very attentive. So it's like all these tiny, subtle things. And the eyes are interesting because, um, you usually don't see much white around the eye because it's covered. But when the horse is tense, um, for one reason or another, you'll see more white show up around their eyes. Um, so, it's, you know, there's just a myriad ways that they, they try to talk talk to us. Um, but that the feet probably is the most because, you know, a, a rapid, when somebody horse is moving its feet rapidly while we're trying to ask them to, to do something um, – they feel like they're rushing. They they don't understand what we're asking. They're trying to do it 
but and they're, they're putting out a lot of try, but they're rushing through it to, to try to get to the yes. That is this what you want? Is this what you want? Is this what you want? It's kind of a constant question they're asking us. Is this what you want? Um, people don't realize how much try a horse has. We read the language so so incorrectly because when horses rush, we think they're wrong. We don't want them to rush. Well, they're trying. All they're doing is trying um, so all the time, just trying. Mm-hmm. You have horses now? Yeah, I, I sure do. I have three, three, uh, uh, Moo. And oh, is Moo still alive? Yes, he is. He's 22. Actually, the this book, um, when you were at the ranch, that's about 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm, right. And you said he was like um, almost 17 years old. Wow. Yeah. Well, how is yeah. Moo? He's beautiful. He looks good. He's, you know, he looks good for his age. He's, he's shut out and I'm still riding him. I don't take him to the ranch anymore. I promised him last year that he doesn't have to do any more lessons. He doesn't have to be there (laughs) for anybody, but you know, me and him, it's just he and I now. So I have to, I have to keep that promise. I think he's, he's done with, with helping other people. He likes his life now. But you're still riding him. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. He's a, still he he's mostly goes out on the trail, and he he does uh like when I start uh, young horses, I'll often ride Moo and pony pony the young horse off of him still. So he still has he still has a role, and I think he he likes to have a role. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. glad to hear he's still with us and and <laughs> doing really well. I get attached to people <laughs> and animals that I read about. Well, thank you so much, Ginger. I am so glad that we got to do this, and it's um, an incredible book. And I'm assuming that the book is available in most places where people buy books. You can always go to your independent bookstores here in New Mexico, and that's always a good place. Um, It's good places to support, and I I think you could um, surely find the book online as well if one wants to do that. And it's also up in Audible. Uh, and it's going to be coming out in paperback, I found out, too. So. Oh, great. Yeah. It's really great. And soon to be a major motion picture. <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. And, I, and thank you for all the horse questions. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. How can I have read this book and not ask you horse questions? <laughs> <laughs> maybe I didn't even maybe I didn't ask you enough people questions. <laughs> Most people who aren't horse people have um a few horse questions, but you know, and and then you know they get more into the story of the people. So that was fun to talk a lot about the horses. Oh yeah, it was really fun to talk about that. This is Women's Focus. I'm Carol Boss. Thanks for spending some of your Saturday afternoon listening to my conversation with Ginger Gaffney. Coming up shortly, I'll be talking with journalist Elizabeth Shogren with the Center for Investigative Reporting, right here on KUNM.